Perhaps the greatest form of deception is self-deception. We've all met the woman who thinks she can cook, but her food tastes terrible. Nobody eats her casseroles at the family picnic. We've all met the man who thinks he can sing, but he can't carry a tune in a five-gallon bucket. When he sings, only the dogs bark and howl. We know the teacher who thinks she can teach, but she bores all of her students. Nobody signs up for her class. In fact, when scheduling time comes, we try to avoid her. We've all met that teenage guy who believes himself to be God's gift to baseball and women. But he strikes out both on the field and off the field. I think the worst form of deception is self-deception. I think the worst form of self-deception is to believe yourself to be religious and you're not. Today we continue our study, the book of James. We come to the end of the first chapter, James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. Before we go any further, I think I need to make mention of a couple of items just to kind of set the table. When we come to the end of chapter 1, James, the pastor at the church at Jerusalem, turns his attention towards real religion. When James talks about religion, he's not talking about the way we understand religion. He's not talking about all systems and forms of belief that we would regard as the world religions. No, James is only concerned with the religion that's acceptable in the sight of God. And so, to that effort, we give our attention this morning. To only be concerned with the religion that God accepts. I also need to say, I'm not quite sure if you wore your spiritual hard hat or your steel-toed shoes. But through the message that God will deliver today, the Spirit of God may thump some of us on the head redemptively. And he may step on a few of our toes correctively. So this morning, I want you to know that the preacher is not just preaching to you, but he's preaching to himself. So, hey, I, uh, I invite you to pull up a chair and let's just talk about real religion. James chapter 1. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. James chapter 1, I want to begin at verse 19, I want to conclude at verse 27. My dear brothers, take note of this, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires, therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, 
he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself. His religion is worthless. Religion that God the Father accepts as pure and faultless as this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Pastor James, the little brother of Jesus, now turns his attention towards real religion. He gives us three characteristics of religion that's acceptable in the sight of God. The first characteristic is this, that real religion righteously receives the word of God planted in you. Real religion righteously receives the word of God planted in you. Revisit once again, verses 19 through 21. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Our God desires righteousness, not just for us, but also from us. In the New Testament, the word righteousness is seen as a legal term. It means to be in right standing with God. You and I can understand it as innocent before the Lord. And so throughout the New Testament, there are two sides of this righteousness coin. The one side, you and I called declared righteousness. The other side, we could render demonstrated righteousness. They're not two separate things. They're one and the same. They're two sides of the same coin. When I say declared righteousness, what I mean is this is what God has declared upon you in Jesus Christ at the moment of your faith. God has declared you righteous. He has declared you innocent. Your sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. Your sins are washed away. Your guilt has been taken care of. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. At the moment of your faith, all of your sin has been wiped away. At the moment of faith, God declared you righteous in the sight of God. You do not become righteous. You are declared righteous. This is a declaration that God makes and covers over your life and mine, all of us who are in Jesus Christ. We are declared righteous. Because of what Jesus has done for us on Calvary's hill, we can never be labeled guilty again. We are declared right. Declared righteousness then leads to demonstrated righteousness. I said that righteousness is something that God wants for you, but it's also something he wants from you. God has paved the way for your righteousness. It is in Jesus Christ. But once you accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, what he wants from you is demonstrated righteousness. So he wants you to demonstrate the innocence that you have in Christ. He wants you to demonstrate the holiness that you have in the Lord. He wants you to demonstrate by your action, by your attitudes. He wants you to demonstrate your new innocent life in Jesus Christ. Now it does need to be noted that For most of James's letter, he articulates this demonstrated righteousness. And because he 
talks about the demonstrated righteousness of Christ more than the declared righteousness, it has called some to misinterpret James's letter. Some have said, James is so focused on demonstrating righteousness and, and, and demonstrating your salvation that it is null and void of declared righteousness. So that, so that Martin Luther says that James is an epistle of straw. It has no foundation to it. It's easily blown over. But what I would say to Martin Luther, what I would say to anybody else who misunderstands the book of James is that James implies declared righteousness. You cannot have demonstrated righteousness without declared righteousness. I don't want to confuse anybody on this matter, but what I'm trying to say is simply this, that God has declared us righteous in Christ. And because of that, we demonstrate righteousness before a watching world and a holy God. So James does talk a lot about demonstrated righteousness, not to the neglect of being declared righteous, but in light of being declared righteous, because you are free in Christ, because your sins are forgiven, this then is how you ought to live. Take, for example, the beginning of our passage. He says that if you have real religion, if you have declared righteousness upon your life, it'll be demonstrated by your actions. And he says, let me put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Let me give you a concrete example. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and even slower to become angry. One of the first theologians I ever met was my mom. And my mom was a good theologian. And she would tell us children, the Lord gave you two ears and one mouth. So you're supposed to listen twice as much as you speak. Now, I realized why she told us that. Because my older sister and my younger brother have the gift of gab and they talked all the time. So mom said to all of us, listen. You've got two ears and one mouth. Listen twice as much as you speak. Be quick to listen, she was saying. Slow to speak. Can you imagine all the noise and chatter if God had created us in such a way so that we had one ear and two mouths? Not only would we look goofy, but some people would never shut up. I mean, if you know the amount of talking that some people do with one mouth, can you imagine if they had two of them? I mean, they would never shut up. So the good Lord has made you in such a way to reflect his glory. So he says, listen, you look at your own life. You got two ears and one mouth. You listen twice as much as you speak. Be quick to listen. Be slow to speak, slow to become angry. This is uh, relationship 101 when it becomes a relationship with God and relationships with others. This is extremely beneficial. But the reality is we have flipped the motto. So that in our politically charged culture, in our society of social media, where we think everybody wants to know our opinion on every single matter and issue, we have flipped the mantra so that we are slow to listen and quick to speak and even quicker to become angry. Because if somebody doesn't understand where I'm coming from, and if somebody makes me frustrated, then everybody needs to know just how angry I really am. 
Because if I'm angry, then you need to know about it. And if I'm angry, then everybody needs to know about it. Because somebody has pushed my button. Somebody has made me frustrated. Somebody's made a decision that I don't like. And so I need to rant and rave about everything so that everybody knows just how angry I am. Because we have become a society that is slow to listen and quick to speak and even quicker to become angry. And when we get angry, we claim that we're being just like Jesus because Jesus had righteous indignation. My friend, Jesus had righteous indignation like once in his lifetime. And we get angry like every day of the week. And we claim righteous indignation. No, you're not being righteous about your indignation. You're just being rude and angry. And you're just not a very pleasant person. Let's just come to grips with that. And so we think that if we get upset, everybody needs to know. And we need to put somebody in their place. No, James comes along and he says, since you've been declared righteous, you need to demonstrate that righteousness in your life. And let me just give you a quick example, he says. So you need to be quick to listen. You need to be slow to speak. You don't have to say every thought that comes in your mind. Let me say that again. You don't have to say every thought that comes in your mind. I'll say it a third time. You don't have to say every thought that comes in your mind. Slow to speak. And even slower to become angry. James had read his Bible. He knew the characters of the Old Testament that suffered from anger issues and needed to probably go to anger management. One of them, Moses. Repeatedly, Moses got angry. He would strike the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And whenever anger gets the best of us, it really does reveal the worst in us. That's true for Moses. It's true for me. It's true for you. When anger gets the best of you, it reveals the very worst in you. So we are to be individuals who are quick to listen to each other and slow to speak and give our opinion and even slower to become angry with another person who disagrees with us or has made us aggravated. Friends, this principle works in every relationship that you have. Husbands and wives, this principle works. Parents and children, children to parents, this principle works. Siblings, whether you're biological siblings or siblings spiritually in the faith family, this principle works. Employees to employers, this principle works. Coaches, co-workers, this principle works. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. James says that when you righteously receive this word of God that's been planted in you, you are to get rid of all the moral filth that is so prominent and prevalent around you. That word filth, it says moral filth, it, it literally is the word dirt. Get rid of the moral dirt. In our passage, it specifically means vulgarity. Get rid of the vulgarity that is in your mind. Get rid of the vulgarity that's on your lips. Get rid of the vulgarity that is in your heart. Get rid of the vulgarity that's on your television screen. Get rid of the vulgarity that's on your computer laptop. Get rid of the vulgarity that's on your iPhone. Get rid of the vulgarity that is within you and around you. Get rid of all moral filth. Friend, if you don't have a plan 
to get rid of the moral filth that's around you and within you, you will be inundated by the moral filth of our culture and our society. If you don't have a plan to get rid of it, it will inundate your life. If you don't have a plan to get rid of it, it will destroy you. It is so prominent, James says, and so prevalent that you've got to get rid of the moral dirt, of the vulgarity that is in you, that is around you. And friend, what plan do you have to accomplish that task? Well, James gives us the answer. By the word of God planted in you. That's the plan. God's word. That's the tool. That's the weapon. That's the resource at your disposal. The way you get rid of the vulgarity within you and around you is simply through the word of God that is planted in you. He uses the imagery of a garden. Any of you ever raised a garden? Okay, a few of you have. My father is a son of a farmer. And so you can take the boy away from the farm, but it's hard to take the farm away from the boy. So my father, who's a son of a farmer, grew up and much of my life he worked for IBM. But still, he wanted us to have a farming experience. I think he thought he was doing us a favor. <laughs> I really think he thought this was a good idea. So we moved out in the country, this little place called Shelbyville. Uh, we bought five acres of land. And so we raised a garden. It was all of our vegetables to eat and, 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 uh, and, and everything there. And so in the summer, my dad would say, I've got to get up and go to work because I work at IBM. But the garden still needs to be hoed. It's still the weeds need to be pulled out. And guess who got to do that? Yeah, me. I've got a brother seven years younger. He was of absolute no help whatsoever. So I would go and we'd have to weed the garden, pull out the weeds. You know how often you have to do that? Frequently. I mean, every day, at least every couple of days. If you don't, the weeds will overtake the garden and choke out all the good vegetables. You could say all the good fruit. This is the imagery that James uses. The word of God has been planted inside of you, believer. And what you have to do is you've got to go to it every day. You've got to cultivate it. You've got to, you've got to work at it. You've got to work with it. You've got to allow it to work with you. If you don't, if you become negligent with the word of God in your life that is planted inside of you, eventually the moral filth and vulgarity that is so prominent and prevalent, the weeds of our culture will literally choke out the good word that's been planted inside of you. So James says the religion that God accepts, real religion, is that which righteously receives the word of God planted in you. Second principle, real religion passionately practices the word of God preached to you. Once again, take a look at verses 22 to 25. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but actually doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. 
It was Warren Wiersbe who says, there are many Christians that mark their Bibles, but how many Bibles mark them? The devil does not care about the number of Bibles that are purchased every year. I don't even think the devil cares about the number of Bibles that are read every year. But the devil becomes unglued by the number of Bibles that are lived out each year. It has long been said that the best Bible is a Bible that is bound in shoe leather. That God's word is something that not only do you learn, but it's something that you live. Because you just might be the only Bible that anybody sees. And so the best Bible is a Bible that's bound in your shoe leather. The best Bible is the Bible that is in you and lived out of you in front of a watching world. You are to be a person who doesn't just hear the word, but you are to do it. I love the way that King Jimmy translates this in the King James Version when he comes to verse 22. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. I think that he gets it exactly right. I like what the NIV says. It just emphatically says, do what it says. You hear the imperative, don't you? You hear the force behind it. Be a doer of the word, not just a hearer only. It's not just supposed to go in one ear and out the other. It's supposed to go into your ear and sink into your life. James uses another analogy. When he says the person who hears the word of God but doesn't do it, it's like the person who looks at himself in the mirror but then walks away and forgets what he looks like. This past week, I've tried to think about that analogy. There are a couple of thoughts that come to my mind when I think about the analogy that Pastor James gives us. And the first reality is this. uh, You know, I have never seen my face with my own eyes, and neither have you. At best, we've seen a reflection of our face. At best, we've seen a portrait or a picture of our face. But I have never seen my face with my eyes. Oh, I've seen my hand with my eyes. I've seen my kneecaps with my eyes. I've seen my feet with my eyes. But I've never seen my face with my own eyes. And you haven't either. We are living life assuming that the mirror is accurate. Some of y'all may have three eyes and you just don't even know it because when you look in the mirror, all you see are two eyes and I'm not going to be the one to tell you about it today. (laughs) We are assuming that that reflection is accurate because we've never seen our own face. We, we, we We don't know what our face looks like unless we look intently into the reflection of the mirror. Also, as I... As, 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 I, as I think about this, I realize that, that I, I look in the mirror and I, I study and I see myself. It's because the reflection of the mirror that it tells me uh, about my wrinkles on my face and the blemishes that are on my face and my gray hairs that are on my face and on my head. And it's, it's because as I look into the mirror, it reflects back to me. As I think about this analogy, I also made this conclusion that I have never walked away from seeing myself in the mirror and forgot what I look like. I never have done that. I mean, I've never passed by a mirror and been stopped in shock thinking, I thought I had blonde hair and blue eyes. I mean, I've never, I've never forgotten what I look like. 
I mean, I know what I look like. Why? Because I look at the mirror every single day. Every day I get ready and it reflects back to me who I am. It reflects back to me all of my blemishes. It reflects back to me what you see in my life. And so I look at myself in that mirror and I've never forgotten what I look like. I've never, I've never walked away and said, how many eyes do I have? What color is my hair? What color are my eyes? Uh, where, where are the blemishes on my face? I have never walked away and forgotten what I look like. Why? Because every single day, I look at the mirror and the reflection of it and it tells me who I am and it tells me the blemishes that I have. In the very same way, James says the wise person is an individual who daily looks intently into the word of God. And when you look intently into the word of God, that word of God reflects who you are. You see yourself for all of your mess and you see God for all of his majesty. You see the reflection of your sin. You see in the word of God, the reflection of God's salvation. That when you look into the word of God, it reflects and reveals who you are. You know who you are because of the word of God that has been preached to you and the word of God that has been planted inside of you. You know who you are because you don't just glimpse in the mirror, but you gaze in the mirror. I don't know anybody who looks at himself or herself in the mirror every single day getting ready and then walks away and says, I don't even know what I look like. Because everybody I know examines themselves against the mirror, examines themselves against the picture. Have you ever gotten a picture back and you thought to yourself, oh my goodness, I have gained some weight, right? Okay, nobody else has done that. Nobody here ever does that? Okay. Remember about the whole thing about self-deception? But anyway, so have you ever looked at a picture and you thought to yourself, I didn't know I looked like that. I I didn't realize that. Because you you, you realize that picture's not lying to you. That reflection's not lying to you. When you peer into the word of God, what reflects back to you is your own sinfulness. And also what you see is the glorious salvation of God. So that you and I don't just glance at God's word, but we gaze at it. We spend time studying God's word and allowing that word to study us. We gaze at God's word, allowing that word of God to gaze upon us. We examine the word of God, allowing the word of God to examine us. For when we do that, we see ourselves in all of our sinful blemishes and we see God in all of his glorious splendor so that Isaiah, when he gazed upon the word, he said, I'm a sinful man. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When Job gazed upon the word, he said, I am a despicable man. And he sat in repentance sackcloth and ashes it is the apostle peter that when he gazes upon the word jesus christ he says apart from me lord i am a sinful man when you and i peek and peer when we gaze upon the scripture we see a reflection of who we are and we see a reflection of the mighty grace of god almighty so when you and i come to this passage it begs the question what are we reading in Holy Scripture? Do we look into the Bible every single day, multiple times a day? Or do we just go to it occasionally? Go to it when we think we need help? Go to it when we think we might need something else? Oh, my friend, I can testify to you this morning 
Yet there have been times and periods of my life that the only way I've been sustained is by clinging to scraps of scripture. That the only way I could make it, the only way I could survive is just because of this word of God that's been planted inside of me and so I cling to that scrap of scripture. Is there anybody in the house who knows the power of a scrap of scripture? Anybody here who knows that sometimes that's all that I need is just to cling to a scrap of scripture because that scripture tells me who I am and who God is in Jesus Christ? Is there anybody here who just knows the power of a scrap of scripture? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin. I will hear their land. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? God is able to do immeasurably more than I could ever ask, think, or imagine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My God will meet all of my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Friends, there may be times you don't know chapter and verse, but all you've got is a scrap of scripture because as you peek and peer into it, you see yourself and you see your great God. And sometimes my life has been sustained just by a scrap of scripture. Real religion that God accepts is religion that passionately practices the word of God preached to you. So let me ask you this. In your quiet time, what are you reading? Where are you in the scripture? Where are you in the word of God? Are you in the word of God? What are you studying? I know that some of you are tempted to say, James, we're studying James. And that's true, we are studying James, but let me say it this way. You don't look in a mirror only once a week. You look in a mirror every single day. Sometimes, multiple times a day. Right before you walk out the door, you check yourself in a mirror. In the morning when you're getting ready, you check yourself in a mirror. How frequently do you check yourself against the mirror of the scripture? Allow that word that does reflect you, that does reveal the glory of God, allow that word to continue to preach after the final amen. When you go home, when you go to the restaurant, when you're seated with your family, does the sermon ever continue? Does the lesson in Sunday school ever get advanced in the conversation? My friend, do not leave the sermon echoing in the halls and the walls of the sanctuary. Allow the word of God that is preached to you to be taken by you into a dark world because it's that word that can help you, that word that can sustain you. Real religion, James says, righteously receives the word of God planted in you. It it passionately practices the word of God preached to you. But the third and final characteristic is that real religion eagerly shares the word of God given to you. Once again, please revisit with me verses 26 and 27. If anyone considers himself religious and does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. 
Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James says, before I leave this topic of real religion, let me just tell you that this real religion, it better affect your speech, your service, and your separation. It better affect your speech, so keep a tight rein on your tongue. What I find very interesting is that this is the first time that James talks about the mouth, speech, the tongue, but it won't be the last. In James chapter 3, he will have a long discourse about that two-ounce slab of membrane in your mouth called the tongue. And the tongue, numerous times, gets us into trouble. We say things we ought not to say. We say things in ways we ought not to say them. And far too many times we have loose lips instead of a tight rein on our tongue. As I read these words, I can't help but hear the echoing instruction of big brother Jesus. That out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the good man says good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man says evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. So when you say something evil, when you say something wicked, when you say something sinfully angry, when you say something that is, that is cutting and, and, and tearing somebody down, you cannot say, where'd that come from? I'll tell you exactly where it came from. It came right within your wicked, corrupt heart. And when I say something equally vile and wicked, it comes from my corruptible heart. Because out of the heart, we speak. I find it interesting that James, who is a pastor, have I said that yet? He is a pastor. And on five occasions in a five-chapter book, he talks about the danger of the mouth. Huh, isn't that interesting? That even at church, people can run their mouth? Even at church, people can have loose lips? Even at church, people can say things they ought not to say in ways that they ought not to say them? Not lifting up or building anybody up, but actually tearing them down? At church, that can happen? And James says, amen, amen, amen. That's exactly what he means. And for those of us who have trouble keeping a tight rein on the tongue, Maybe this morning we just need to say to the Lord, Lord, I cannot put a guard over my mouth, but you can. I have, a, I have trouble keeping a tight rein on my tongue, but Spirit of God, you can do it. And so if this is what you regard as real religion, I want to be a person acceptable in your sight. You've declared me righteous. Let me demonstrate that righteousness by the words that I say. Real religion that's acceptable, it's not false or phony, is religion that serves. So he gives two examples, taking care of orphans and widows. I don't think that he's saying those are the only two viable ministries of the church. But I do think he's saying that the ministries of the church must be helpful to people, must be protecting those who can't protect themselves. So two great examples of that is taking care of the fatherless, and taking care of women who are in distress, who've had husbands die and go on to be with the Lord in heaven. And those are two examples of our service. Because we've been declared righteous, we demonstrate that innocence, we demonstrate that right living by how we take care of other people. The children, the elderly. 
how we take care of the orphans, how we take care of the widows. You realize it now, but today we launched the Caring Well Challenge here at First Baptist Pelham. The Caring Well Challenge is a united call to all Southern Baptist churches where we speak directly and actively to the sexual perversion and sexual abuse and sin that's been too common in churches over the last few decades and shoved us aside and pushed under the carpet. The reality is that one out of four women and one out of six men are sexually abused at some point in their lifetime. Stop and think about that. One out of four women, one out of six men. The only reason the men uh, has a higher ratio is because the men are more quiet about it. They just don't speak about it, don't say anything. And if that's true in America, it must also be true in the church. And you may be here and you may be a victim of sexual abuse. I want you to know that we desire to be a place that is safe for survivors and safe from abuse. So you saw the team that's been assembled. You know that they're going to be trained. And as pastors, we're going to go through curriculum. We're going to examine our policies. We're going to see how they're actually implemented here in this faith family. We're going to try to look for any gaping gaps or holes in our ministry to the youngest of our children, preschoolers, our children's ministry, our uh, student ministry. And then next spring, we're going to report back suggestions that we have as a team i think this is something that god would see as real religion i think this is something that god would declare that this is an example of taking care of orphans and widows this is an example of taking care of those who can't take care of themselves taking care of people who have been abused they're protecting people who uh, who, who need some uh, safe refuge here in the church church this is something we have to be about This is something we have to be adamant about. Why? Because this is something that Jesus is adamant about. James says that this real religion that eagerly shares the word that's been given to us is in speech, in service, but also in separation. Blessed is the person who is not polluted by the world. That word polluted means spotted or defiled, blemished. Now, James is not calling us to separate from the world. He remembers what big brother Jesus said, to be in the world but not of the world. But James is telling us, don't let the world rub off on you. No, you're called to rub off on the world. Don't be like Lot. Scripture says that Lot uh, moved in and near Sodom. It didn't take very long for Sodom to move in and near Lot. Don't be like the children of Israel. They were brought out of captivity, but they wanted to go back to captivity. They said, when we were captives, we had food to spare and water to drink, and you brought us out to this desert to die. Listen, my friend, God has not redeemed you, so you'll retreat back into captivity. God has redeemed you for you to be whole. God has redeemed you for you to be forgiven. God has redeemed you to give you a life more abundant and free. So this is the religion that God accepts it is real religion it's real religion where we righteously receive the word of god planted in us we 
passionately practice the word of God preached to us. We eagerly share the word of God that's been given to us. Oh, friend, I I think that the worst form of deception is self-deception. The woman who thinks she can cook, but she can't. The man who thinks he can sing, but he can't. The teacher who thinks she can teach, but she's terrible. The teenage boy who thinks he's God's gift to baseball and women, and he's not. And the worst form of self-deception is to believe yourself to be religious, and you're not. This morning... The invitation is simply this. The real Jesus is calling you to real religion. And I know there are some people, some groups, some churches who say, we don't like religion. We're not religious people. We don't like religious people. We're about relationship. I get that. I understand why they say it. I don't know why they say it in a country twang, but I get that they say it. But James uses the word religion so it can't be an all bad word. Religion's not bad so long as it's acceptable in the sight of God. I don't know about you, but because of the declared righteousness that God has given to me of Jesus Christ, I want to demonstrate acceptable righteousness and religion in the sight of God. And I don't think I'm the only one in the house who wants it. So if you want acceptable religion, if you want real religion that is accepted in the sight of God, then this morning the real Jesus calls you to real repentance and a real relationship and real prayer. And maybe you just need to come to this altar and cast all your cares upon him. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. We pray. That for somebody listening to my voice who does not know you as Savior and Lord, that today will be the day of their salvation. Father, for the redeemed who have heard the sermon, help us to respond in obedience and passion. Help us to be people that long to demonstrate righteousness in our own life. And where that is askew, help us to repent. And Father, we declare that we need you in all things. Help us not to be fake or phony but to be real in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.